Welcome to Stupsin. Stupsin is a series of Dharma talks by Anthony Osler, Dai Chong Osho, the guiding teacher at Poplar Grove Zendo in South Africa, and a former Zen monk. The talks draw from traditional Zen teachings and koans to make them relevant wherever we live and whatever life we lead. If you feel inspired by these teachings and would like to make an offering to support Stupsin, you can go to our website, stupsin.co.za, to find out how. We search for liberation, but we're looking in the light. Our minds are dazzled daily by the clever and the bright. Let's blow out the candle now and turn off the torch. Rock in chairs on the darkening porch. Switch off our screens, there's nothing to know. Hand up the car keys, there's nowhere to go. Let's not talk so loudly. Let's pull down the shades. Down in the valley, it's starting to rain. <coughs> So thank you, Christine, for including those lines. They're from Zansi Zen. If I can sell a few more copies this morning, I'll get beer money for spring. And uh, I'll be happy. If I'm happy, my wife's happy, the dog's happy, the cat's happy. Uh, <laughs> when I... First encountered Zen, I'd come from a, a different Buddhist tradition, um, which was a kind of mix of Tibetan uh, kaju practice and uh, Vipassana traditional practice. Uh, and I, I found some of Zen deeply enticing and quite alarming because it presented itself as a form of Buddhism but sometimes it manifested itself as a kind of anti-Buddhism so the idea that as you will know the story that if you really want to meet the Buddha you have to kill the Buddha uh, took some getting used to, not to mention people burning Buddha statues and using uh, scriptures as uh, toilet paper. Uh, so part of me, the part, the, the the nice, respectable part of me, which some of you may not have met, um, was always a little troubled and embarrassed by this. I didn't know quite how to how to do it. Um, uh, and despite this, it was something that intrigued me deeply, that uh, I had a sense that people that had been on this path for many, many centuries had had looked at things in a way that I hadn't. And this quote of, of not looking in the light, 
where you see what you already know, but be willing to look uh, in places where you don't know. Th that instead of expanding the light, as it were, um, turn off the torches. Uh, allow, uh, what do they call it, load shedding to take place and see what happens there where where we are filled with uncertainty and and uh, a sense of awake alarmedness and curiosity that was the quality that that kind of emerged out of uh, my uh, uh, alarm at at some of the utterances of the tradition. And it was really only when I began to understand the, the Taoist input into the Zen tradition that I, that I began to realize the depth of this and also the, the, the otherness of it. That some of these facets of the Zen tradition that appear to be uh, less obviously Buddhist come from their own lineage of deep spiritual practice. Um, that they were the host and, as it were, the context of our Zen practice. And then it began to make sense, the language, the the style of practice and so on. And, and there were two things that, that I find uh, fascinating. Uh, one is that the Zen tradition went back to the basic experience of enlightenment of Shakyamuni Buddha in India, where he sat under the Bodhi tree and sat there with the vow not to get up or to give up until he had attained enlightenment. Uh, I use the word enlightenment, but please um, feel free to use your own words. That his life... He, he would he made the commitment not not to give up in making this life shining and brilliant and meaningful and that according to the traditional story he attained that he attained his own life when the morning came and he lifted his eyes and he saw the star in the sky. That story, in its absolute simplicity, is what the early Chinese Taoists honed in on and said, that that I understand. I understand unwavering commitment. 
I understand sitting under a tree. I understand looking up at the night sky. And in a way they went back to the most elemental Buddhist story and made it their own. And, and in a sense they kind of bypassed all the other teachings, the Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path and Three Marks and various things that that came with the Indian and Middle Asian Buddhist monks to China. They kind of ignored what, what all of that was about. Another fundamental feature of this tradition is in fact just what we've looked at, where the teachings themselves are regarded with uh, some sense of uh, throwaway ability, dispensable. What is that? Uh, our disposable culture. Yeah, teachings are very disposable. Teachings in words are disposable. And that was uh, a feature of the Zen tradition from the very beginning, where the legendary first Chinese patriarch, uh, Bodhidharma, talks of going beyond fine words and scriptures, finding your original nature and becoming Buddha. And I'd just like to, to, to look at that, and, and uh, it's something I find so fascinating. Because what really emerges in Zen practice is that the Buddhist teachings of suffering and the end of suffering and the way towards the end of suffering are still part of our lives insofar as we are, as we see ourselves as separate from the whole process of living and dying and changing. And that separate self, which is part of all of us, needs an anchor of teaching, of words, of guidance. And so that remains, as I see it, a, a deeply important part of our tradition. At the same time, again from the Taoist lineage, there's the sense that as we move in our spiritual lives, uh, away from uh, suffering, uh, this is the traditional teaching I'm using now, as we do that, the logic of a spiritual life means that the words we use to describe our path and our situation begin to change. They begin to change with us. And so the concepts and ideas and goals and methods we use 
as suffering self to move out of suffering, all of those begin to blur, they begin to move into each other, they begin to fall away. And so the fundamental, quote, Buddhist, unquote, value of non-attachment means very fundamentally non-attachment to the teachings and all the concepts that underlie that, uh, that path. If we just look, for instance, at the most traditional uh, Indian Buddhist, uh, classical Buddhist uh, path of the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path, uh, it's so interesting to look at it in, in this light. So we begin with the sense that we have, that we are um, particular and separate in some ways, and that our life is not as as we wish it to be, or hope it to be, or sense that it could be. We have a sense that our life is difficult, that it needs to change. This longing for what we call enlightenment, which is the end of suffering, uh, is very strong. And we embark on the discipline and the the promise of a life out of suffering. That's the fundamental model that we have. But something then very interesting happens as we begin to walk that path, as we begin to do it that even the meaning of the word suffering begins to change. It, it begins to broaden so that the traditional Buddhist mark of existence as suffering, suffering is endless, that mark begins to begins to become a little bit more uh, open. And we begin to see a suffering in, in, a, in a broader light. And we become less certain about all sorts of ideas we had of, of suffering. This uh, came to me recently when Margie was uh, telling me a story about uh, a woman called Mama Lulu who, who runs this old age home that we are uh, helping and that you are helping. And how, how difficult her life is. She, she, she's a cleaner at the local school, earns 3,000 rand a month, 
Um, parents, her mother died, her father walked out. She uh, lived on the street, eventually got a job, uh, very strong church woman, eventually found her father, looked after him in his old age, and decided to collect the abandoned elderly in, in this area, which is what she does now with the help of, I think, 14 unpaid young volunteers. And we were talking about the, like, the difficulties of her life, the suffering that she'd had. And at some point, Margie said, well, I phoned Mama Lulu this morning because she said her child, it's a foster child, she does that as well, um, her, her foster child was matriculating from school and how proud she was. So Margie offered her, offered the young boy, uh, one of my old lawsuits uh, for the occasion. And Mama Lulu said, no, she'd got a suit. She'd hitched her way to Bloemfontein, which is about 250 kilometers away, um, hired a suit, hitched all the way back, and given it to the young boy for his, his matriculation. And then the next morning, so she didn't need the suit, and then the next morning she'd hitched to Kimberley to a hospital there, which is even further, to see how one of the elderly women uh, from the home uh, was doing, and hitched back, and her lift was late, and she missed the graduation. And then she sent Margie uh, some pictures of it, which she'd been given because she couldn't be there. And, and we just sat on the stoop and, and had the sense that how, how difficult we feel our lives are sometimes. And how, especially in an unequal society like this, how our own difficulties and, and anxieties just pale in comparison to others. So there was this deep sense of respect that just emerged out of that kind of thinking. And it was also clear that as far as Mama Lulu went, her life was very clear. She did what needed to be done. Uh, and that was that. It was very, very simple and very, very clear. And of course, inspiring. And our sense of who is suffering, 
who to compare with, what is suffering, how to respond, all of that just began to kind of open out. And that instead of my suffering that I, uh, I yearn so much to, to lay down, it just, there's a sense that some people had taken what I would see as suffering and made that their life, made that their spiritual path, that opportunity. And then one's judgments begin to be a little more fluid and a little less certain. Out of apartheid and imprisonment comes Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu and many others. And then the, the sense of suffering, what it is, how it should affect us, the fact that we need to get away from it, that whole dynamic begins to, to open up. Until suffering feels like the kind of The, the, the kind of compassion that arises naturally when our lives are intimately bound up with everybody and everything. So that instead of me trying to end my suffering, when I sink into this world, what arises naturally is compassion. What we call compassion, of course, that's just a word. But a sense of everybody's difficulties, everybody's struggles and anxieties and fears. And, and using and being enlivened by that that this is, this is my life. I, along with everybody else, am struggling through this life. I and everybody else can stand up in the midst of the suffering and hold out my arms to others. So that, to come back to the, the theme, as it were, of the talk, the, the whole dynamic of the path and the words we use to describe it just begin to blur and fade away and we are left with the actual living of this life. And that, to use traditional Zen uh, vocabulary, is... Uh, our original nature, or our Buddha nature, our true nature. And that only can appear when all the words we use uh, can drop away into the lived 
experience of it. And perhaps just to to move on from there, the, the second of the noble truths in the traditional Indian Buddhism is the cause of suffering, which is seen as attachment, and particularly, of course, as you will know, uh, the attachment of desire, uh, I want, um, with its inevitable opposite, which is some kind of aversion, some need to change my life or to change this life I find myself in. And that that is connected with my suffering. There's endless debates. People get PhDs on things like this. Uh, Good luck to them. I just never understood it. Um, Which is why I do Zen, of course. But I think what's interesting there is that attachment as a problem which causes suffering as we as we go along in our lives becomes not just desire in that sense as a problematic sense but my deep fondness for everybody the deep fondness for this life that we find ourselves in, this uh, open-heartedness. So that along with the early Taoists, I can say attachment, suffering, what's the problem? So it's so important, or at least I should say it differently, it's so helpful to me to be able to let go of the words of teachings. And then we are able to live in a world of great mercy. However difficult it is, and that's part of this Process this home that we have of endless creation, transformation, change, death, movement. However difficult it is in a personal sense, when we are able to sink into it, uh, a whole shining life uh, becomes a possibility. And then the third noble truth, which is the end of suffering, is something that we feel is not a goal that we have to leave suffering and stop attaching in order to attain. It's simply when we just breathe out and find this moment in our life that this is uh, me at my most at home, my most belonging, my most unadorned 
and in a way at my most intuitive and natural. And because we're not holding to ideas about it or how it should be or how I should be, we realize that that's going to move sometimes. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we need to start again uh, telling ourselves to come to the zendo, to sit on time, to shut up, all of that sort of thing. And then if we're able to keep a looseness about our practice, the end of suffering is, is a possibility in every single moment. Including this moment. And then when we chant our traditional refuges, I take refuge in the Buddha, meaning... I take refuge in the life of sitting comfortably under a tree in the middle of wherever I am and being willing to be there completely. Sometimes there's a star, sometimes there's a cloud, sometimes there's a bus burning. That, to use Zen language, is taking refuge in the Buddha. Taking refuge in the Dharma, the teachings, the teacher. Instead of looking outside of myself, picking up scriptures and looking at books and commentaries, the whole world is my teacher. The whole world is constantly teaching me. So how do I respond? That's my koan, that's my question. And I begin, I suspect, by saying thank you very much. And I take refuge in the Sangha, which is the community of practitioners traditionally, and I see that when I let go of that as a, as a dogma of any way, in any kind, that, that I'm swimming in a sea of Sangha. That there's nothing that is alien to me or outside of my life. That in this deep, intuitive, connectedness um, who is not my friend who is not my teacher who is not the person uh, whose hand I can take and so although uh, in situations like this, we use uh, the language of a spiritual tradition. We use it in a way that is light and creative and unattached and willing to forego the certainty of words.
words in scriptures in favor of an aliveness in this moment, an embodied aliveness sitting on our chair, sitting, listening, sitting with the screen, with wind, the smell of coffee, cars down the road. And then our practice, uh, as it were, attains itself. In every moment we're able to do that. And as part of that we realize that even that will change and even that will be forgotten. And my willingness to start again is part of this life too. So I, I, I find that endlessly exciting. And I'm so grateful to be able to share it with you all uh, this morning.